welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum being held here at Westminster Presbyterian Church located at the corner of 12th Street and Nicollet Mall in Center City, Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this downtown congregation. Any similarity between this church and the Church of Perpetual Responsibility in in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, is anything but coincidental. (laughs) With that comment, I've already begun to introduce today's speaker, Garrison Keeler, creator of, host for, Minnesota Public Radio's A Prairie Home Companion. Broadcast nationally by American Public Radio live every Saturday afternoon over 200 and some public radio stations. Fictitious and yet oh so real Lake Wobegon, which figures large in each of Mr. Keeler's monologues and which reflects so much of his own growing up in a small Minnesota town, is the site not only of the Church of Perpetual Responsibility, but also the Chatterbox Cafe, Bob's Bank, Bertha's Kitty Boutique, Skoglin's Five and Dime, where you can still get something for a nickel, and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. If you can't find it at Ralph's, you can probably get along without it. <laughs> Lake Wobegon is where buttermilk biscuits are a staple of life. They give a shy person the strength to get up and do what needs doing. As all faithful listeners know, this town that time forgot, that Keeler enables us to recall out of each of our own histories, is the place where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the children are above average. One article describes Garrison Keeler as a pastor on the roll. The Prairie Home Companion show comments another is at its heart a gospel show. I would hasten to add, a gospel show perhaps, but in the best sense. It doesn't show. It's just there, without needing to be named. Many of Mr. Keeler's stories and articles in such periodicals as The New Yorker and The Atlantic Monthly have, I suggest, a keen ethical, philosophical, and theological cutting edge. His recent article in The New Yorker entitled The Current Crisis in Remorse is a case in point. Allow me quickly this personal observation. Over the years, I've always envied Southerners their wealth of stories growing out of that rich culture. By comparison, growing up in Minnesota, which I also did, has always seemed so mundane and drab and routine and predictable. Well, Mr. Keeler, I feel, has rescued this part of the world from our own self-imposed oblivion (laughs) and enables us to say, blessed is the ordinary, even here, or especially here. Happy to Be Here is the title of Mr. Keeler's book. Well, we're happy 
that he's here today, and we're happy to be here with him and to offer him an auditorium a bit more worthy of his talents than the World Theater. <laughs> Mr. Keeler's topic for today, changing the light bulb. Can we meet the comedic needs of the 80s? Mr. Keeler, can we? <laughs>
stood around drinking white wine, talking about acid rain, and uh, uh, having a good time, and noticed people were looking at my foot. Guests were looking at my foot, and the host uh, making references to shoes, and uh, say, uh, well, make yourself comfortable, take your shoes off if you want to. Socks, too, we often go around barefoot. We play shoe tag if you want. Uh, go outside, run through the sprinkler. Until I realized what they were really interested in seeing. They weren't interested in me at all. They were interested in the fact that I had a face on my foot. So I'm glad that you um, are interested in what I have to say. As fascinating as that toenail is. Especially when you shine a little, uh, like a flashlight from the side. <laughs> and you wiggle it, it looks like he's uh, talking and uh, <laughs> blinking his eyes. Now, just in case I run uh, uh, long today, I, I want to read my conclusion first so that I don't. <laughs> so that I don't miss this, and then you'll be able to see what I'm leading up to. <laughs> a nation whose cartoonists continue to be amused by talking animals, and whose comics can still depend on double entendres that predate the New Testament, and whose common coin is the indefatigable light bulb gag, can face the future confident that its comedic resources will be conserved through recycling. <laughs> almost, almost ten years after the first light bulb was changed, we still seek new answers. How many Presbyterians does it take? How many public radio announcers? Knowing that the answers will come not from Washington, which has supplied less and less of our humor in this decade. But from people at work, from our brothers-in-law, and from all who believe, as someone once said, I would rather change one light bulb than talk about the crisis in secondary education. <laughs> this is not to say that we should be giddy or silly and make light of serious problems. And yet, how can we ignore the fact that last month, more than... 15,000 man-hours were spent in Minneapolis alone discussing Soviet policy after Andropov and concluding that it's too early to tell. <laughs> 12,000 hours is even longer than Thoreau took to write Walden, who taught us that one cannot straighten out the world who's not learned to enjoy it. The light bulb that is burnt is darkness to us, Thoreau wrote. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. Now, the rest of the speech is um, <laughs> kind of long, too. I'm going to summarize parts of it here for you. Um, I start out with a history of comedy, go back to the... Uh, Greeks and the Romans, the Norwegians and the Salonese, and uh, 
raise some of the basic issues in humor, one of which is, can a person be funny and stay within the bounds of good taste? Can a person uh, be humorous without talking about you-know-what? <laughs> which is a question that comedy has struggled with for um, centuries. The answer, by the way, is no. Then I talk about the fact that for most people, comedy is what fits their view of the world. And if something doesn't, uh, then it isn't. <laughs> and, uh, but if something is not funny to us and is funny to a lot of other people, it bothers us an awful lot. And I write this. I want to quote a little bit here. It's ridiculous to tell someone that she doesn't have a good sense of humor. The simple truth is that she doesn't find you amusing. <laughs> Even so, people hate to be accused of it. Even people who've been accused and convicted of vicious, despicable crimes. If before sentencing the judge were to lean down and say, you know, you have a very poor sense of humor. <laughs> the defense would leap to its feet and object. Humor, a good sense of it, is to us what virtue was to the Victorians, and we'll go to great lengths to prove it. Experiments with laboratory rats have shown that if one psychologist in the room laughs at something that a rat did, all of the other psychologists in the room will laugh equally or even more. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, humor really does not entirely satisfy people, since humor is supposed to reflect our view of the world. Somehow, it is also supposed to lead to something, lead to changing the world or improving the world. Humor is kind of a resource, I think, to most people. You tell a couple of jokes to kind of soften up the crowd, and then you sell them something. It's supposed to come a point where you say, but seriously, no. And I think for most people, that point is more enjoyable than comedy, is when you get to say, but seriously, no. I get letters from people who are urging me to uh, uh, get serious and uh, start dealing with crucial issues. This is one of them. She writes, I enjoy your show every week, but... I wonder sometimes if you have ever stopped to consider seriously your responsibility to your audience. We live at a time when the threat of imminent nuclear destruction overshadows our lives, when most people feel utterly powerless to do anything about it. With that large audience on Saturday night, you could accomplish so much good if you would only speak out. During the time of Hitler's Third Reich, I'm sure there were comedians who only entertained 
and who ignored the evils around them. I hope that you won't. <laughs> Your show would be an ideal platform for supporting a sane nuclear policy. You're creative. I'm sure you could find a way. Well, some people have a talent for inspiring guilt. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, God-given talent. I don't think so. Though, of course, it's always in a good... Uh, it's always in a good cause. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to make us feel so bad and so sheepish and feel as if we're silly, if we're trivial people by, by not standing up and speaking out and saying what they think. She reminds me of a friend... I used to have. I think I had him longer than anybody else. <laughs> we had a real talent uh, that way. Um, a real talent in the, in, the, in the middle of friendly conversations to wait for that little pause in a conversation and then say... I was uh, reading an article the other day, and it was always bad news. It was always bad news. The sorts of things that when you say them, the whole room becomes quiet. Whenever he was around, you could see that tremendous ability of grown-up people to become reverent on command instantly. When the magic words are said, always having to do with death and destruction and misery and terror and fear, death mainly, reverence for death. He came to visit us um, once long ago when I lived on a farm up um, north of here which I did back about 14 years ago when a lot of writers uh, did that, who maybe had read too much of Thoreau, and who weren't cut out for that sort of thing, but did it anyway. Went out there for the clean, moral life of the country. And my city friends like to come up on weekends to be around corn and... Um, <laughs> associated with large animals, and uh, <laughs> I remember the, ten of us on a, a Friday night. They come up Friday night and stay for Sunday dinner, and it was Friday night, and we all sitting around in the Minnesota farm kitchen around one of those tippy, round oak tables with the four legs that don't quite support it, a little cloth each, you know, and it's always are meaning to refinish, but you'd need to get a higher class of friends before you do that. <laughs> and they were sitting around, spilling and having a good time and walloping down pizzas and uh, drinking cheap red wine and uh, telling cheap jokes, many of which were about cheap. And uh, even though we didn't keep cheap there on the farm. And... Uh, or snakes, either. And uh, there came that pause in the conversation 
which is all he needed, about three seconds. And he said, I was reading an article this last week that said that nuclear war is more likely now than at any time in history, including during the Cuban blockade. And it was silent. Absolutely silent. He said that he didn't know how it affected us, but that for him, living under this threat all of his grown life, who could tell what the effect of this was on all of us, how it had damaged our lives, and that for him, he knew that it had destroyed his belief in the value of work and <laughs> in made him question how people of conscience could bring children into the world. He said, the thing that I don't understand is how people can just go about their business as if this didn't even exist. It's like they don't care about the world. It's like they don't even care. Well, he sure cowed those humorists around that table pretty fast. There was a lot of throat clearing that followed that. Everybody head bowed, eyes closed. Nobody laughed. Somebody reached over and turned off the fire under the coffee pot as if, as if it didn't have a right to percolate, you know, at a time like that. The cat sat there in the window looking grave and pious the way cats usually do, as if she had been thinking about this very thing for a long time. Well, I can see how people of conscience can have children. I, I couldn't see it when I was much younger, but I've come to be able to see it. You know, you kidding around, and uh, nine months later, uh, everything's different. It's a good thing to have children. They're fun to hang out with. More fun than many adults. And they also teach you something if you have one available right there in the premises. They will teach you something about caring about the world. They'll teach you that caring about the world does not begin with fear. It doesn't begin with display of piety. It doesn't begin with morbidity. It begins with fascination, with beautiful, shining things that are near at hand that engage your eye so that you are inspired to stand up on unreliable legs and launch out from a chair across a very tricky floor and reach it somehow, almost like 
little critters in cartoons who walk off the edge of a cliff but don't fall so long as they look straight ahead. Children do. They'll teach you that caring about the world begins with an appreciation of mud, of dirt when it rains, which becomes glop, which you can put on your head, which you can <laughs> stick to your body, which you can put on asphalt shingles and serve to your friends, <laughs> which you can sit in and it forms a new shape, exactly like your own rear end, <laughs> and which when you squeeze it, it oozes out between your fingers, as does food. <laughs> we did some of that on the farm where I lived. We also played Starlight Moonlight, which is a wonderful game in a farmyard that is almost an acre large after it's dark, a farmyard that has one light on a pole by the barn and that has outbuildings all around, tool shed, tractor shed, a granary, the pump house, the pig barn, chicken coop, and a lot of bales of hay. Starlight Moonlight is a great game out there. We didn't talk about death all the time. We did that too. Though some people have that game wrong, you know, who think that the aim of it is to go way out as far as you can in the dark and find a perfect hiding place and stay there permanently. <laughs> but even if you yell to them, that the game's over and everybody should come in. They think it's a trick. <laughs> and they stay out there. Maybe that was my old friend's problem. We also lay on the ground and looked up at the stars a lot. Which may not strike you as a real big time. But when people have worked all week in the city, people who live in apartments, have worked all week in low rooms under fluorescent lights and for unpleasant people and have driven a hundred miles, four of them, in a VW. <laughs> when you release them out into a farm and they take a breath of air, it goes to their head and they become goofy. And... Any weekend night, out in a little strip of pasture that we had between the windbreak and the cornfield, you'd always find a few people lying out there in the grass looking up at the stars, including this Friday night. There were four escapees from the table who had snuck away one by one to get beyond the sound of his voice and wound up lying on the ground looking up at the stars. It's wonderful 
It was wonderful then to, to look at a realm where the president is not the president. And to look at a billion stars on a clear night. And for each one of the billion, there are a billion others beyond it. You lie on the ground and you lose the horizon, you see, so that you're no longer looking up. You're only looking out. You lose the horizon which gives us that strange, realistic perspective of the sky as a canopy which is centered over our head. And you see it for what it is. It is everything other than here. It is the world without end, amen, as we talk about. It is the whole beach minus this little grain of sand. Some of my friends were leery about lying down in strange grass. But once they looked up and saw this amazing, well, how do you describe You can't describe it. It's beyond knowing. When it comes to what is out there, everyone is in the dumb club, even people who studied it. And the sum of all knowledge compared to it is like the amount of the ocean you take home in your swim trunks. <laughs> and yet people looking up at the stars lying on the ground say things, funny things. Everything that you say is funny. The fact that you would say anything is funny. But people do say, wow, that's far out. <laughs> it sounds like a pea dropped into an empty bucket. Makes a little clink. One more pea brain looking up at the infinity there. <laughs> Feels like he wants to give us his reaction to it. One more sensitive person looking up at the at the south wall of the great everything is reminded by it of something that happened to him a year ago in October, or was it September? It's funny lying with people looking up at the stars. It's almost as if God had hung a little guest book down out of the sky on a long gold chain, and we opened it up and we had to write a little thing. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, God, for inviting us out here tonight. We had a wonderful time. The sky was very clear. The stars were absolutely magnificent. And i um, sorry we have to leave now. The fact that we were out there was humorous to me. The fact that we were anywhere seemed humorous. 
looking up at the stars at night, it strikes me sometimes, it did then, that everything is humorous. That humor is not a trick. It's not jokes. It's not words. It is a presence in the world, like the presence of grace, and is always there, and shines on everybody, even the guy in the house. God bless him.
there's a question here that I think already has its answer based on something you said earlier. Do you own a cat? If the answer is no, would you like one of my roommate's cats? <laughs> I do have a cat. If you brought the cat with you, I'll take it right now. The other profound question that immediately follows that is that did Pastor Enquist get out of the bathroom last Saturday? Yes. Oh, yes. No, I got him out of the bathroom. His, his, uh, his wife arrived home and uh, got him out. It was a long couple of hours in there, though, and... Um, he kind of uh, regretted the fact that he'd made such a big thing the week before about uh, children reading in the bathroom, and he'd cleared out all the reading material. <laughs> I was, he was uh, uh, cast back on his own resources without, uh, without really knowing what was going to happen. This is a quote from you. I once dreamed that I drove over a hill in central Minnesota and found Lake Wobegon. In the dream, they weren't particularly happy to see me, but they managed to be fairly polite. I was invited to someone's house for supper, and then I woke up. Uh, just a matter of curiosity about the kind of feedback that you get from the people that you're talking about. Do they make identification between your description and themselves? And if so, do you hear from them? or? Oh, they do. That's the wonderful thing about radio, is that uh, it's much easier work than, uh, than writing. People do all the work themselves. You just mention a small town, and you put a water tower up over it, and uh, uh, you lay down a street and have some storefronts, and immediately they filled in all of this with uh, a place where they grew up or um, something that they've seen recently. Uh, a person who tells stories on the radio doesn't have to have many gifts of description. You just have to uh, uh, stay a step ahead of them in the story and find a place to end. The greetings you read on the air, are those real or made up? Uh, if they're made up, I, I didn't make them up. They're made up by the people who mailed them in. <laughs> Would you encourage your son to become a disc jockey and radio essayist humorist? No. encouraging him in, in a different direction towards the um, a life in, uh, in music, which is a, a, a very high-paying business uh, uh, nowadays. I'm looking at some musicians out there in the audience, and I think there's a lot more dignity attached to it. One from this audience, what do you think work is? I used to be good at this when I was in college. Uh, I could uh, I could turn out 200 words on a question like that. 
in a blue book without even thinking about it. But um, <laughs> I think that's the sort of question that the person who asked it really knows the answer. <laughs> can't but resurrect at this moment something you said, even a shy person learns to bear up under pressure when money is at stake. <laughs> I remind me to ask you how much I was getting paid. <laughs> I was never clear about that. Uh, are humorists artists? No. I mean, they might hope to be. They might hope to be someday. I think E.B. White is an artist. I'd put him in the category of artists. He's now 84, going great, seeing his books being brought out again in new editions. And I think his stuff will last... Uh, last as long as the state of Maine will. Mm. But I'd be reluctant about the rest of it. Another question from the group today. To what do you attribute the widespread national appeal of the rural Midwestern focus on uh, or of Prairie Home Companion? Well, there are Minnesota exiles all over <laughs> the country. Uh, we're a major exporter of people here <laughs> in the Midwest. Uh, some of them may be listening right now. And uh, I hope you're happy where you are. We kind of could use you around here, but uh, I guess that's your own business. No, I think they tune in out of... Um, out of guilt, I think, probably every, every week. So they can claim not to have completely abandoned the Midwest. I think I shared with you before the program my own experience that in going around the country occasionally, it, it used to be people would say, with reference to Minneapolis, oh, Mary Tyler Moore. And now they say, Garrison Keeler. Well, that's one of the dangers, you see, of uh, when your show comes to an end. Uh, as, as things did. Uh, you were so quickly forgotten by, by, the, by the people. Mary Tyler Moore's fans probably haven't looked at her show for, for a while. It's a, it's a, it's a cruel business, and, uh, and I feel for Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> Would you be willing to share something of your, your religious background and current religious outlook? The sort of personal and the subject? Well, I don't know if I could share it with you. Uh, there's an awful lot of you here, and uh, it, would take us, um, <laughs> it would take us a long time. I think you would have had to have uh, uh, been there at the time. But I grew up among um, uh, people. Uh, kind of giving you time to think about each uh, <laughs> part of this answer. 
uh, among people who who were uh, born again Christians, uh, who were evangelical, and who uh, believed in the literal interpretation of uh, of scripture, and uh, uh, somewhere in uh, my history with them, we failed each other. Uh, but I've always had a feeling in the back of my uh, mind and in my heart that they were absolutely right. Do you want me to go on about this? In, the, yeah. in, in your church, Reverend Mark, yeah, do you want me to... You're in the pulpit. <laughs> I have, I've read and heard an awful lot about fundamentalists. Um, since they were discovered by uh, magazines. Um, <laughs> that doesn't bear a lot of relation to the, to the ones who I grew up with who were so fundamental that they didn't approve of most of the fundamentalists you've read about. <laughs> That's how fundamental they were. Are you more funny since you shaved off your beard? <laughs> No, it's a uh, reason for shaving off a beard is um, is that a man likes to make some kind of change in his life when he comes up towards the age of forty, mm -hmm. and there are very few changes that uh, a man can make. <laughs> and those of you who are in your thirties and who don't have beards have even fewer than I have. It feels good. You feel like a new person, and uh, uh, my boy got a chance to look at my face, which he had been curious about all of his life, <laughs> and it's, it's a great thing all around. Do your parents ever complain about the personal stories you tell? Well, I tell a few stories that, are, that mention them. I don't know if they complain about them so much as they correct me on uh, <laughs> on details. Um, people who hold to the literal, literal interpretation of Scripture, you know, have a very uh, keen sense of um, of detail and of um, of literal uh, truth, and uh, and they've tried to hold me to a very high standard. You owe them a debt, then, given your artistry with detail. I always like to improve on... Uh, <laughs> I always like to improve on some of these stories, you see, so that they teach uh, uh, clear moral lessons. You see, if I didn't uh, edit uh, my, my childhood a good deal, it would not... Uh, be nearly the inspiration to the young that it is. Perhaps this next question is a, a natural sequel. How do you compose the monologue? Do you write it first, or do you do it extemporaneously, or just how? Well, it has the great advantage. I don't know how I discovered this, but it just is a wonderful device that I recommend to... Um, 
to all other writers, and that is that the first line and the last line are always the same week after week. I thought it would uh, be a, uh, save writers a lot of time if they were able, as I am able, to, to just start out with, with a standard first line. And mine is, uh, it has been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon. <laughs> now, that usually leads me into the weather, this being Minnesota. <laughs> and then uh, it um, leads on into other things. I, I pay some attention to the uh, liturgical calendar because it is a, a God-fearing town. And uh, to the whippet schedule when they are um, playing, and to the uh, growing seasons of the year, which is uh, important there. And about halfway through, I start looking for the last line <laughs> and try and find a way to come in at a slow angle of descent toward it. That's the news from Lake Wobegon, where the um, <laughs> women are strong, the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. I've crash-landed in that sometimes, but um, that's all there is to it. Do I understand you to have said that you'll go home after this program and, and work up next Saturday's program? Yes, I have to. I have to do a little uh, work here in, the, in a little bit. Go and uh, find a typewriter and some clean paper. I thought you were saying dropping a word processor on your foot was a new version of shooting yourself in the foot. But <laughs> kind of a... Excuse me. You have often spoken of trains with endearment. From whence comes this fascination? My father worked on a train as a railway mail clerk on the run, mainly on the run from uh, St. Paul's Union Depot on up to Jamestown. And uh, I thought it was a great romantic job. Think of your dad out there speeding across the uh, prairie in the mail car, sort of mail, even as the thing moves at 80 miles an hour, mm -hmm. and putting those sacks up there on the brackets on the side of the car so that the arm in the next town would seize them off, and the door is open, the thing is rattling along, dust is coming in, and my dad, right there, with a 38 special strapped to his waist. Mm -hmm. I never got to go with him. I just kind of imagined what it must be like. I did get to shoot the gun once at uh, Stumps, and uh, he couldn't hit anything with it. I don't think he could have hit the side of the mail car with it. <laughs> but, uh, I believe you have a book in the making, in the works. Do you care to share anything about that? What's coming, what we can look forward to? Well, it's a, it's a book about uh, Lake Wobegon. I find as I go along uh, week to week making up uh, uh, some things and uh, telling other, uh, fact, giving other factual information, uh, 
that I've become inconsistent over the years, and um, listeners keep writing into me to say, um, uh, Carl Krebsbach's wife's name is not Karen. Don't you remember? <laughs> her, her name is Janice, and they don't have three children. They've got nine children. You said that a year ago. So I'm trying to uh, get all of this uh, straightened out. I was intrigued with the article to which I made reference in the introduction. Your, your article in the New Yorker called The Current Crisis and Remorse. On the assumption that not everyone has had a chance to read that, would you care to just share what was on your mind when you wrote that? I... Well, I think you've read it more recently. <laughs> I was afraid you might do that. <laughs> oh, I, I, the article simply uh, takes off from the premise, I think it's true, that uh, people feel less remorse uh, now than um, they used to, and, uh, and instead of repenting and feeling bad for their sins, are explaining them to us. And it uh, occurred to me when I read the newspaper and there was someone in print in the newspaper who uh, had pleaded guilty to uh, a um, terrible crime. I think it was murder. And who was explaining to the interviewer after he'd been convicted something about kind of, you know, like where he was at when he did this, and, uh, and, it was, and one of his problems had to do with diet and nutrition. And he was kind of mixed up, but, you know, now he was okay. And, uh, you know, he felt bad about it and everything, but, you know, that's in the past. And, uh, hey, i got to live my life now. And it was... Um, Surprising to see this in print in a family newspaper, but there it was. I thought it deserved comment. I commend it to everyone. Where did you study English literature, history, and philosophy? I studied English literature for a few years at the University of Minnesota, and I studied history uh, in the library at the University of Minnesota, and uh, I studied um, philosophy from uh, my parents, as we all did, uh, starting when I was a kid. I hesitate to read this one lest you think it a plant, and it isn't, but Red Skelton once said a clown, which he classified himself as, is the second highest calling of man, second to the ministry, care to comment. <laughs> Well, I'm sure there are many ministers who'd feel that way. <laughs> too many of them try to be clowns, too. I'm running out of questions. Well, let me ask you one, then. <laughs> Why is this uh, Bible on the pulpit open to the 
27th chapter of Jeremiah and also the 28th and the 29th. Is there, is there a verse in here that well, the, is symbolic? The uh, ideal question is that we were counting on you to be prophetic, but yet truth is that that's where the Bible splits open in the middle. I see. <laughs> do this again. (laughs) One comment I read in thinking toward today, the radio for Mr. Keeler teaches something about the nature of time itself, especially how quickly it all seems to go. And that certainly describes this hour that we have had with you. We're all going to remember many things that you've said, one that I'm going to go away with and it's going to be part of me for a long time is that caring about the world, caring about the world doesn't begin with fear or morbidity, but with fascination. And I thank you for that, as for many other things today. (laughs) 